praise God, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, this will be the last verse or last message in this verse, 1 Timothy 2.6. Uh, we will have a, a couple other messages probably on the atonement and what Christ did for us and paying for our sins and perhaps even the extent of the atonement because it's mentioned again in 1 Timothy 4.10. That allows me to break up the emphasis that I've been giving you in the last uh, couple messages and still uh, emphasize what Paul is emphasizing here in 1 Timothy 2.6, the heart of the gospel, uh, Jesus' death for our sins. Of course, he was buried and he rose again. That is the gospel. And when we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, we, we come across a verse that is controversial in the body of Christ today, a verse that should not be controversial, uh, a verse that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, in the early church, was, uh, you, know, you don't see any people disputing who Jesus died for among the early church fathers. Uh, it was a celebration. The name of this message is, Did Jesus Really Die for Me? Part two. We did this, uh, a message on this last week. Did Jesus Really Die for Me? Uh, I think last week I mentioned to you that uh, when I was witnessing on the streets, street witnessing and sharing the gospel, I... Uh, a guy came up to me from a Reformed background, a very strong Calvinistic background, and he warned me that I better not be telling people that Jesus died for them, you know, because that's, you, that you can't tell people Jesus died for them because Jesus only died for the elect. Uh, he wanted to know what I was sharing first, you know, after I shared the gospel with him. And he said, I'm glad you didn't tell me Jesus died for me because that would be a false doctrine, you know. That'd be false teaching, and um, I hope you don't believe that. I go, oh, no, I do believe Jesus died for you. You know, I presented the gospel to you. Uh, every time you present the gospel, you don't have to say those specific words, right, that Christ died for you. But certainly if you do, you're telling the truth. In fact, uh, Paul right here makes it clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. He speaks of Christ who gave himself as a ransom for who? For all. The testimony given at the proper time. And my heart breaks uh, for the church today because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the church today who wonder if Jesus died for them or not. Even though they're going to church and they've been going for years. Uh, I mentioned uh, Paul or Copan yesterday, Copan, a uh, Calvinistic leader, uh, writing a whole article on assurance of salvation and how he says his fellow Calvinists struggle with w whether they're really saved or not more than anybody he knows even though they believe in perseverance of the saints, but they struggle wondering if Jesus died for them. And he talked about that morning he was dealing with a guy that had called him up and was struggling with that and been struggling for a long time with that and was suicidal because of that issue. And I really believe it breaks the Lord's heart. I believe these scriptures are here for a reason. I believe there's a spiritual war. I believe and I know and I believe that I believe and I know that Satan is a father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. He wants us to doubt God's love for us. Job, when he was in the throes of Satan's delusion in chapter 7, asked the Lord, why won't you forgive my sins? That was a lie. He believed from the enemy. And Satan was working him. We know that. Just read the first couple chapters of Job. The Lord had forgiven his sins. In fact, the Lord declared him righteous. In fact, the Lord said he was more righteous than any other man, right? And he was forgiven. But Job fell under the delusion that there was no hope for him. And many millions of professing Christians through the years have struggled with that to one degree or another. So this has very strong ramifications on practical theology as to how you relate to God, how you, the kind of confidence you have as a child of God, how you relate to others, how you view other people. Do you view people as people that God might, might not love or might not have died for? might not want, that he predestined to be burned, to burn in hell forever because he didn't love them enough to die for them and predetermined that they would not choose him and so forth? Or do you believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life? Do you believe that God's not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance? Or do you believe in verse not just six here that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, but verse four, he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? I believe those things. As I said to you before, there's not a single verse in the entire Bible that says Jesus only died for the elect. But that teaching has been growing and growing. And you know what? It's, I, 
If you've been in this fellowship any time long, you've heard me preach on it. It comes up a lot because I know what people are hearing on the radio. I, I counsel people. I've been counseling and encouraging people just recently in the last few weeks that have struggled with that doctrine that have come from a reformed, strong Calvinist reformed background and have been inquiring me and telling me they've been listening to my messages, telling me they've been struggling with that because of being taught that where they're at. I thought, interesting timing because we just happen to be in these verses right now, you know? And i uh, been having some really good discussions with people that have been taught the opposite lately. And I'm grateful that they're hearing these messages because it's, the good news is good news, amen? amen. And when you're, we're called to preach the good news, we're called to tell people the good news that Jesus died for them, amen? He was buried, he rose again on the third day. That's the gospel Paul said. It wouldn't be very good news if he only died for the elect, huh? That means if I was, if I really believed that and I had this belief that, hey, Jesus only died for the elect, like most Calvinists believe he only died for the elect, five-point Calvinists, T-U-L, the L is, of the tulip is limited atonement. If a Calvinist is honest when he's sharing the gospel, he'll say to somebody, you know what? Most likely you're going to go to hell because most likely Jesus didn't die for you. There's a small chance he did because he died for certain people, but you really can't know if he died for you in this world. You could have some evidence, as John Calvin taught, that he died for you. But then again, according to John Calvin, God gives people a delusion to make them think that they're saved for a while, to give them a measure of grace, and then he withdraws it so they can be more damned. So maybe he died for you, and maybe you'll believe, and if you believe, maybe it'll be true faith, but maybe God's tricking you, and you'll be damned forever so God could damn you even more because that's the kind of God he is. I'm sorry, that's what Calvin taught, okay? That's not the good news, guys. Amen. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him, what? Might be saved. And people are condemned, not because Jesus didn't die for him, but verse 18, but because they don't believe in the only begotten son of God. They don't put their trust in the one who died to save them. And it goes on to talk about this world that he died for, that he loves and gave his son for, that they love darkness more than light and they refuse to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So it's telling us who that world is. And I went through that, John 3.16, last week. Uh, I did it on a Sunday. We went through John 3.16, just celebrated the beauty of it. And then last week, we looked at John 3.16 in light of 1 Timothy 2.4. And we were challenged by the idea that, well, the word world may not mean world there or the whole world there. It could mean the world of the elect. And we saw that that's ridiculous. And we saw that D.A. Carson, one of the top reformed or Calvinistic writers in his book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God acknowledges in there that it's wrong for Calvinists, his fellow Calvinists, to say that the word world there speaks of the world of the elect. And he speaks in John's gospel that in John's gospel, throughout the gospel of John, the word world there does not mean simply the elect. It's speaking of the lost world, right? And he gave different definitions of how John used the world, but it's never of just the elect. And he understood the word world there to mean the lost world system, people that are lost. Folks, those are the ones that God loves. Those are the ones that God gave his son for. It's not the teaching that everyone will be saved because there's a condition. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, amen? amen. And Jesus even gets to give us a picture of this in the verses that run up to verse 16 and verse 14 and 15, which we looked at. Do you remember that? Where even as the serp, Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. That we're believing will not perish, but have everlasting life. Then he goes into John 3, 16. Amen? Amen? So man, if Jesus died for the world and he loves the world, when you share the gospel with people, you can share them that that's good news. Amen? That they can know that they're loved. That they can know that God made a provision to save them. That they can know that God wants to save them. That they can know that they can be saved. And that if they reject him, they're damned, not because of his lack of love for them, but because of their choice not to respond to the wonderful and beautiful love of God. Amen? Amen. So, uh, I wanted to quote one more before we move on from John 3.16 as we study this, more, study this more thoroughly. But in 1 Timothy, the context again to remind you, and in case you're just in on these studies and you're new to them as well, before Paul says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, He's already been warning against false doctrine in chapter 1. And many, many commentators believe he's concerned about the Gnostics. And the Gnostics 
and he's dealing with incipient Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that there was more than one mediator, hence Paul's words, there's one mediator between God and man, and the man Christ Jesus. And the Gnostics believed that salvation was only for an elect group of people. That was one of their main heresies in the second and third century, and evidently already in the first century, just for their elect group. But Paul emphasizes that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says it's a trustworthy saying in verses 15 and 16, of worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am chief. He says, guess what? He came to even save me, the worst guy. And he goes on to say that he saved me to show others that anyone who would come to him could be saved. Amen? Amen. What's his point? The gospel is for everybody, even the worst sinner of all, Paul, who is having Christians killed. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says to pray for everybody. Everybody, Paul, do you really mean that? Yes, he means that so much because you might be tempted not to pray for your leaders like Nero and others who are butchering Christians and hate them. So guess what he says in verse 2 and following? Even pray for the kings, right? And those who are in authority, those who you might ignore because they persecute you. Pray for them too. Really, Paul? Why? Well, because God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of truth, verse 4, Right? Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, verse 5, amen. Because Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, verse 6, amen. That's why. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And I believe the gospel is under attack by people in the reform movement who are diminishing what Jesus Christ did. Now, I was going to have Jonathan play a little clip for me, but I know he's double duty. I think he's up there as well. So uh, I don't know how we're going to pull that off. So hopefully... uh, Jonathan, could you send someone down if they're in the booth with you? If not, don't worry about it, you know. Uh, we'll try to get this clip in. I don't know why I have not been able to play this clip. I've tried to play it the last uh, couple weeks. It's been on me both times, and this time Jonathan has to pull double duty, so it's not on him, it's on me again. But it's a really interesting clip that might seem like, how does this relate even to what is being said here? Uh, Trent's going to play the clip back there. No, I'm kidding. He's giving me a thumbs up. He's, he's willing. Uh, but anyways, it's interesting because... When we look at the scripture, uh, thanks so much, Jonathan. You are doing double duty tonight, huh, bro? Sorry, bro. Praise God. So this is a clip. If, if you like football, any, any Cowboy fans here? I know we got a lot of Texans that love our ministry and are part of us. And uh, Is there a cow in the house? Oh, that was a boo, not a moo. Okay. Uh, but uh, they should have a pretty good team this year. But they got a cornerback that's really good named Trevon Diggs, professing Christian. He's one of the better cornerbacks in the entire NFL, uh, uh, Trevon Diggs. And he and his kid were speaking, and they said some, his kid said something that was just so precious. And uh, I wanted to play this for you. And check this out. It relates to my message. So this is, I think his name is Aiden, little cute little guy. This thing went viral. Uh, and it, it's basically him telling everybody he loves them and so forth. And... Uh, now, we're talking about who does God love in the context of this, this message, right? Uh, who does he love? Does, did he really die to save you? Did he really die, die to save me? That's something that we need to know. And uh, we're going to play that clip now. Check it out. If I told you ESPN and the NFL also said that boy Aiden right there, he doesn't really love the whole world. He said that, but there's other places where we found that he says he hates most people. But he just loves certain people in the whole world, and he wants most people to go to hell. Would that be sad? And what if he never said that, but they said that about that little boy? What would you think? What do you think would happen to ESPN overnight if they started saying, this little boy really hates most of the world? Really, he wants most people to go to hell. That's what this boy's really about. Come on, what would you say? What would you think? You would say, that's horrible, right? In fact, there'd be huge boycotts of ESPN, but guess what? Nobody would say that, but guess what? God says he loves the whole world and that Jesus died for the whole world. But you have people saying that about God. I'm telling you, that's why this is so serious. We need to get this in perspective. And this is when eternity lies in the balance for humanity and people wonder if God loves them. They see all these suffering going on in the world, all the evil in the world. They wonder what kind of God is this that allows that. Then they're being told, guess what? He's a God that predetermines that most people go to hell and he doesn't love them and he didn't die for them. That's wicked, you guys. And that's why we need to stand against this and it's growing. In fact, many popular teachers teach this doctrine or a variation of it. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 
How can you be sure that Jesus died for you? How can you be sure that Jesus died for you? 1 John 2.2. 2. And to me, this is one of the clearest verses in all the Bible of who Jesus died for. 1 John 2.2. 2. And he himself is the propitiation. The propitiation means the payment. Biblical context, payment for sin. He's the one who satisfies God's wrath that we deserve. He paid for it. Jesus did. Okay? Back up to get context in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the what? Propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of who? The whole world. If you're talking to a brother or sister in the Calvinistic tradition, and they're telling you that Jesus didn't die for the whole world, bring them to this verse. He's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. When he says our sins, who is he referring to? The elect, us Christians, amen? He's not only the payment for our sins, the elect, us Christians, but for the who? Whole world, guys. And we already saw last week in John 3, 16, where God so loved the world that he gave him love. He got sin that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life, where that same world that he loved and gave him son for loved darkness more than light. That's the context. It's the lost world, not just the elect. Amen? amen. Now, what's interesting is when he says our and it's a shame that I even have to prove these things. But we do. Because guess what? You can come under fire from somebody who's very reformed, and all of a sudden you're looking at a very clear verse, and before you know it, they have it saying the opposite of what it says. They have this verse saying he didn't die for the whole world. Or when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, as Spurgeon admitted about his other Calvinists, that he says, that reading into the text, he said in 1 Timothy 2, 4, and he says, by the time my, his fellow Calvinists get done with it, it no longer says God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of truth, but that only God wills, that God does not will that all be saved and come to knowledge of truth. He has them saying just the opposite of what it says. And it's a shame, but you have to stand for the truth. And you have to know what the scriptures say. So we can't just look at a verse sometimes and just say, oh, praise the Lord. You have to look at the context and say, okay, first of all, does it really mean what it seems to say on its surface? And then, or does it mean what others say, you know, it means that Jesus doesn't, didn't really die for the whole world, but just died for some people and different people throughout the whole world or just the elect throughout the whole world. Again, if he wanted to say he died for the elect throughout the whole world, he could have just said he died not only for our sins, but for the elect throughout the whole world too. But he doesn't say that. So first all, I'm going to say this, is that the first uh, personal, or first person plural right there, our sins. He died for our sins. In the Greek, it's a first person plural. Who does that refer to? Our sins. It refers to John and other Christians. How do we know that? Back up. Read the context. Go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. We see another first-person plural. But if what? We walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Who's the we in us? Christians, amen? amen? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? So first person plurals. So he's referring to us believers, amen? And then he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, verse one. And then in verse two, he says, he's not only the propitiation or the payment for our sins, that's Christians. Who is he contrasting with the Christians, you guys? The whole world. The whole world. Amen? And I'll tell you what, I had a couple sisters tell me recently, uh, a week or two ago, a couple weeks ago, that they were really blessed because they came from a very reformed background. They're still in that background to a degree, in, that, in a fellowship that's part of that background. And they said, shared with me that it was very difficult in uh, feeling that God may not love them, Jesus may not die them. They struggle with assurance. And one of the gals said to me, Joe, I've been listening, both of them were listening to the messages. And one said, I just want to praise God because God's used your message. He goes, this is the first time I've had assurance in my life and believe that. That's why this is important. I shared that. Actually, I was sharing that with Holly, 
And Holly said, you know what, Dad? I talked to that gal. She's so, such an awesome sister. And they both were awesome, awesome sisters, you know, really precious. And she said, Dad, when people wonder why you speak about Calvinism, sometimes I don't think they have a clue what's going on out there. Sometimes people just think, because we know what's going on in here with a lot of the scripture, but I speak to people beyond this group, and I want to fortify you as part of this fellowship to not only defend the gospel with those who are lost, but also defend the gospels when it's in contention with regard to what's going on in the church. And the gal was saying, I just want to, she was very thankful to the Lord because she says, I've been listening to your messages and for the first time in my life, I have assurance of salvation, you know? And, uh, well, it's interesting because when he says he loved the whole world, or in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him. I want to not only quote a D.A. Carson, but I'm going to quote someone else on John 3, 16. Another reformed leader, okay, by the name of William Mounts. He's probably the foremost Greek scholar that's quoted in by when you go to the New Testament, when you go, you look at Greek studies and you look at Greek words and so forth, he's probably used more than just about anybody, him and another guy named Wallace, but probably Mounts is more popular than he, Wallace as far as, I, I, I would bet on that only because I see him referenced so often, William Mounts, he's a great Greek scholar and he's a Calvinist. But look what he says about John 3.16 and he warns his fellow Calvinists, fellow Reformed Calvinists, that they shouldn't, not that they're reading into John 3.16 to empty it of God's love for the world. Listen to what he says when he's looking at the Greek in John 3.16. He says, contextually, John is asserting a relatively unusual notion that God not only loves those who follow him, John's normal usage, but that he actually loves the entire world, hence requiring an indefinite construction to limit the meaning of the statement. Now listen, because that's what Calvinists do. They limit, this, they limit this. He says, to limit the meaning of the statement to a subgroup of people, those among whom you who believe... Uh, those among you who believe, is to read, listen to this, he says it's to read a theology not supported by the Greek. And he says, and I am reformed. In the larger context, he says, it agrees with the statement like 1 Timothy 2.4 that says God wishes that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Wow. Just what we're saying, amen? He said it agrees with 1 Timothy 2.4 that God wills that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. He goes on to say it's true that each and every person who believes is a subset of the whole, uh, the whole, meaning the world, and the gift of eternal life is only for the, that subset. We agree with that too, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He loves the world, right? Amen? Gave his only begotten son, but it's only those who believe that will be saved. Amen? Amen. He says, and the gift of eternal life is only for that subset, but to somehow limit God's love to a subset of people runs counter to the Greek, the meaning of uh, pos. Uh, the grammar, uh, the immediate context, and the larger context. Yeah, he's totally right. The larger context is even Nicodemus is being invited to be saved, amen? The Pharisee, who's representing the other Pharisees, and he gives them his illustration of the serpent being lifted up that whoever would look at it among the Jews could be saved. And he's saying, guess what, Nicodemus? Anyone who looked could be saved. It could be, their life could be saved. There in the book of Numbers, guess what? Nicodemus is not just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world. And whoever looks to the Son in the whole world for salvation and puts their trust in him will be saved. But as we look at 1 John 2, 2, it says in verse 2, he himself is the payment or propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That is a verse you might want to circle. You might want to rejoice in that. I rejoice in that verse because I don't have to doubt whether Jesus loves me or not. I don't doubt whether Jesus died for you or died for me or not. I don't have to wonder when I share the gospel if I could tell people Jesus loves them, God loves them, Jesus died for them. I don't have to wonder about it. And we've already seen the context when he says our sins, he's talking about believers, amen, Christians. If we walk in the light as he's in light, we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus. He's not talking about a small group of people that he thinks is just my little group of people. It's for all Christians. And God intended 1 John for all believers, amen. amen. Now, What about the term whole world, you know? The term whole world. The term cosmos, the Greek word for world, cosmo and cosmos. 
It's used 23 times in 1 John. Who's it speaking of when he speaks of the world in 1 John? Not one time, not one time out of its 23 usages, and not one time throughout the entire New Testament does it mean the world of the elect or the elect throughout the world. Never means that. In 1 John, it's used in different ways. It's used of the evil, fallen world system. It's used of the lost in the world. It's used of, it's used of the lost in the world along with believers as well. It's used a few different ways. It's never, ever used of just the elect. And I'm sad to say people read 1 John 2, 2, that he's appreciation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the elect in the whole world. It's not what it's saying. In fact, let's look at John's usage of the word world. Let's look at it. If you go to 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he says, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world, for all that is of the world is lust the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and, and the world's passing away, and the, world, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So the word world there is used of the fallen wicked system. Is it speaking of the elect there? Yes or no? No. No, absolutely not. Now, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. See the contrast again? Us, like ours and the whole world. Watch this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God and such we are for this reason, what? The world does not, what? Know us because it did not know him. Does the word world mean elect there? Yes or no? no. Absolutely not. In fact, it would be ridiculous for John to say that he's bestowed love upon us, but, if the, elect, but uh, the reason the elect doesn't know us is because the elect doesn't know him. <laughs> Amen? Yeah, that is laugh worthy. It's ridiculous. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. They, in verse 5, speaking of the false teachers, the false prophets, they are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We, in contrast, are from God. <laughs> he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice how the world there, it would be ridiculous again for him to say that the false prophets were from the elect. No. He's saying the false prophets were from the world. He's speaking of the lost world. Are you with me? Amen. Amen. This is John's usage of the word world. It never means elect. Okay? In 1 John 3.13, go ahead and look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the what? The world hates you. Notice that the world is contrasted with the brethren. We're seeing that over and over again, over and over and over and over again in 1 John. Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Does that mean the elect? That would be ridiculous. John would be saying, don't be surprised if the elect hates you. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the lost world system. Okay? Now, when we go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says it again. Let's go look at it again, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of who? The whole world. Who's whole world, guys, now? Is it the elect there? We're seeing John's usage of the word cosmos and cosmo does not speak of the elect. It speaks of those who are anti-Christ. Anti it speaks of those who are from the anti-Christ spirit of the world. It speaks of those who hate Christians. It speaks of the lost. Are you with me? Yes or no? Amen. Absolutely. So when you, you got to read things in context, and that's why we study. This is called a Bible study. So we get down and we say, hey, what's the word say, man? And when you look the go through, no Calvinist will ever be able to say, hey, look, right here in 1 John of the 23 usages, here's one that actually means elect. It means the chosen ones, the, 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 those who are going to be saved because he only died for those who will be saved. No. 1 John 2, 2, by the way, we're seeing the word world over and over again, right? But guess what? We've only seen once so far in 1 John 2, 2. It's even stronger. 1 John 2, 2 says, he's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the world, no, of the whole world. world would have been enough. But I believe the Holy Spirit is emphasizing this because he knew what would happen. He knew what would happen with the Gnostics, 
saying that salvation is only for a small elect group. He knew what would happen by the, by the Calvinists who, got, or who were influenced by uh, Gnosticism because Augustine was a Gnostic for about 10 years and believed that salvation was only for the elect and he used the Bible and they twisted it and limited a lot of verses on what Christ did and who he did it for. And then Calvin picked up his teaching from Augustine who picked it up from the Gnostics. And John was written to combat, just like 1 Timothy was, the Gnostics. You could read any introduction pretty much to 1 John, even in your study Bibles, a more limited, uh, most study Bibles have a limited introduction. And you'll see in the introduction that John is dealing with Gnosticism, which taught that God only wanted to save the elect. And he's combating so many of their doctrines. We've gone through it already. We went through 1 John, looked at all these doctrines that John was combating that were Gnostic, but he's specifically also combating the idea that God doesn't love the whole world, only wants to save a few. Hence his emphasis that he's a propitiation not only for our sins, the, those of the elect, but for the sins of the whole world. In fact, that term whole world comes up one other time. Who do you think it refers to? The elect? No comes up one other time in 1 John. Go to 1 John 5.19. Get ready for checkmate, guys. 1 John 5.19. Just like 1 John 2.2, 2, we know, uh, we, uh, he's a propitiation not only for our sins, our sins, in contrast, but also for the whole world, whole world. Look at this, 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world, same Greek words, by the way, and that the whole world lies in the power of who? Of the evil one. Checkmate. Catch that? So, ha, come on, guys. We're seeing over and over again, the hour refers to Christians, us, we, over and over again. We're seeing the world refers to either lost world system or the lost world or the world made up of lost people and saved people, never just the elect. And we're seeing in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God. We, the elect, know that we are of God, but the whole world is under the power of the evil one, Satan. Amen? Is the whole world under the power of the evil one, the elect, yes or no? no. Or are they just lost people that need to be saved? Lost people that need to be saved. So we go back to 1 John 2, 2. We know who the whole world refers to. Who does the whole world refer to in 1 John? Those who are under who? The power of who? The evil one. Just half of them or all of them? All of them. That's why he says the whole world is under the power of the evil one. So you go to 1 John 2, 2. He's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of who? The whole world. What does that mean? Come follow through. That means he's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the, all those who are under the power of the evil one. Are you with me? You say, Joe, you're really emphasizing that. You bet you I am because I don't want you to miss it. I want you to leave here with that drilled in your heart and your brain so you never have to doubt whether Jesus loves you. Amen? Amen. Were you part of the whole world before you became a Christian? Amen. Were you under Satan's power? Yes. Were you the object of his love? Did he die for your sins and not just our sins? Yes, he did. Don't ever, ever, ever doubt God's love for you or whether Jesus died for you. You just need to make sure you're putting your trust in him. Amen? Now, listen to what John Calvin said on 1 John 2, 2. You know, you're probably, some of you are probably tripping out because the most, most time I'm quoting Calvin in this little series, he agrees with us. And many Calvinists will admit that John Calvin taught that Jesus died for everyone. Then other Calvinists will say, yeah, there's places where he's taught that, but he also taught that he didn't die for everyone. And guess what? I agree with both. You're right. Young Calvin seemed to teach in his institutes that Jesus only died for the elect. But in his commentaries, where he's commenting on Scripture, he often was faithful to the Scripture. And, common, and, and Bible trumps systematic theology. Amen? Amen? And that's one, the pesky Bible, man. And when people, commentaries in the Bible, and you just deal with the Bible, often ruins systematic theologies. And guess what? Calvin's commentaries on the Bible often just destroyed his Calvinism. Listen to what he said on 1 John 2, 2. Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world and in the goodness of God is offered unto all men without distinction. 
His blood being shed not for part of the world only, but for the whole human race. For although in the world nothing is found worthy of the favor of God, yet he holds out a propitiation, a payment to the whole world, since without exception, without exception, he summons all to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than the door unto hope. Meaning, and you can't say, well, he really still means just the elect. Then you're just not being honest, man. Because how is he saying the hope is given to the whole world? He offers the door hope to everybody without exception. His point is, is because Jesus, he points out, based on 1 John 2, 2, is a propitiation not for, only for our sins, but for the sins of who? The whole world. And right there, I don't say amen to John Calvin a lot. But right there, amen and amen. That's good commentary on 1 John 2, 2. Now, uh, and by the way, well, if he died for the whole world, how come all aren't saved? Well, he makes that clear in 1 John. It's conditional. Salvation is conditional. Back up to 1 John again, 1-7. If, 1 John 1-7, but if, we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, what? Cleanses. cleanses us from all sin. Even though he died for you, he doesn't cleanse you until you what? Come to faith in him and confess your sins. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Now, it's very interesting. When I was challenged by this this, I'll call my brother. I do believe my, the Calvinists that limit God's love and their understanding of what Jesus did for them on the cross. I do believe many Calvinists are saved. And I believe many people that aren't Calvinists that are Christians, are, that professing Christians are saved. There's those among Calvinists and there's among those who are non-Calvinists that profess and aren't saved. But if you're truly trusting what Jesus did for you on the cross, right? You've repented of your sins. You're putting your faith in Christ. You're saved. And I mentioned recently, I've done this before, that some people say, no, Calvinists aren't saved because they're limiting the gospel. And I say, no. I said this to a very well-known writer, author, on the phone because he said that Calvinists are lost and he cut Calvinists off from himself and they cut himself off from him. There was a big rift in the body of Christ and I tried to bring some peace and I shared it with him. I said, and I won't say his name, but a lot of you would know his name. Some of you have his books, some of his books. I said, hey, bro. I go, Peter believed that Jesus only died for the elect for a while. He thought salvation was only for the Jews, right? And then God dropped a sheet with unclean food in front of him and said, kill and eat, and made him aware that guess what? God was also giving repentance to the Gentiles, that they also could be saved, amen? But Peter, when he had a limited view of what God did, was he lost? No. In fact, he couldn't say Peter was lost when he had a limited view of the atonement. But you look at the first 10 chapters of Acts, right? And then what happened, and Peter is being used by God mightily, but he has a limited view of what God did. And then God, to make it even more, make it stronger, he brings Cornelius, right, to him. He brings him to Cornelius, Cornelius to him, uses angels, uses a vision, uses all this radical stuff, right? That's why he dropped the sheet three times, and he brought Cornelius to him, who was a lost Gentile, who feared God, gave to the poor, and then Peter said he learned something that God is not partial, amen? That all who fear him, he accepts all who fear him. Anyone who fears him. The Bible says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he makes his covenant known to them. I don't care where they live. If a person fears the one true God and says, wait, there's a creator here and he fears him and I want to do his will. Jesus says, he that wills to do the will of the Father, John 7, 17, he will, he will know the doctrine. He'll know the truth. We have a good God. Acts chapter 14, he has not left himself without a witness. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 17, he puts us in different places, in different geographies, at different times. And he points for us so that we might grope after him, it says, and that we might find him. That's the heart of God. Amen. We have a good God. So when this brother came to me and said, Joe, I hope you're not telling people Jesus died for their sins. We ended up debating the subject. I think it was the, the, the fellow, we'd been at church for maybe a, a year at that time, 
when we actually did the debate. Uh, he's a guy I told you that he called me up right before the debate and said, Joe, can we change the debate to another subject because you have too many verses that say Jesus died for everyone and I just have philosophy. I said, no. <laughs> We're still doing it. If you want to, I don't want to change it. I want to do it on this. I could do another topic later, but I want to do it on, because this is what you challenged me on when I was street witnessing. And this is what I'm passionate about, who Jesus died for. This is the heart of the gospel, guys, and who God is, his character, his love, salvation. I don't know what more important we could talk about. Because when you get that right, you know God, and you seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and you know he wants you to seek him, and you're accepted by him. Everything else falls into place when you're really serious about Jesus. And, but when I debated him, guess what scripture I used? Not only John 3.16, which makes it really clear, because here's, here's somebody sharing, it's Jesus himself, right? With Nicodemus, a non-believer, that God loves him, amen? And that Jesus died for not just him, but the whole world, right? But 1 Corinthians 15, I said, what happened? And I put this on a transparency during the debate. The debate. I said, what did Paul first share with the Corinthians when he witnessed to them? What did he share with them? Because remember, he told me on the streets, you can't tell people Jesus died for them. Hope you're not saying that. Because that's not how they did it in the Bible. I'm like, really? I couldn't wait for the debate. 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what Paul says in verse 1. Moreover, he's talking to the Corinthian church. He's going to bring up to them when he first shared with them the gospel. Listen to what he said. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. He preached to the Corinthians in the book of Acts. Which also you received. Now he's talking about when he first preached it to them and they what? Received it. That's the context, right? And in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. That, that, what did he first preach to them? That they received? What's the first message he gave them? Verse 3, that Christ what? That Christ died for our sins, verse 3. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Amen? So what Paul was first sharing with the church of Corinth, he's saying, the first thing I share with you, and you received it, what I shared with you is that Jesus died for our sins. He told them that Jesus died for our sins. That means his sins and what? Their sins. Well, maybe the hundred people that were listening to him all were just elect. No. No. Now you're reaching again. Okay? You're with me? That's ridiculous. So when he was first sharing with the Corinthians, when they were lost, get it? He said Jesus died for our sins. So yes, you could tell people Jesus died for their sins. Amen? Jesus said it to Nicodemus. Amen? Nicodemus didn't go away from there scratching his head. I wonder if he means God loved me when he, spends the whole, when he mentions world. He knew he meant him because he gave him an illustration of the serpent being lifted up in the pole that anyone that looked could be saved. Many people didn't look and were doomed, but they could have looked. I ask you the question... When Paul says, we beg you on behalf of God, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, when he says, we beg you on behalf of God to be reconciled to God, can you say that honestly to a person if you don't know if Jesus died for them? That's what Paul is saying right here. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ, begging people to be reconciled to God. How could you beg someone, be reconciled to God? If Jesus didn't die for them, because if he didn't die for them, there's no way they can be reconciled to God. Amen? Amen? You're giving them, you're lying to them. When you preach the gospel, you tell people that they, you know, if you repent and believe, you'll be saved. No. They can't repent and believe if they're not elect. And they can't be reconciled to God if they're not elect. It gives a false promise. But you know, something I wanted to do is I wanted to go through people that obviously were not saved, but you could prove Jesus died for. And you could say they were saved and lost. You could say they were never saved. I'm not getting into that argument right now. I think some of them were clearly saved. But the point is, is that they were lost and the blood of Christ was shed for them. 
proving that Jesus didn't just die for who? The elect. Amen? Because they weren't among the elect in the end, that's for sure. How about Judas? How about Judas? When Jesus was at the Last Supper, he offered his, he said his blood is, he told Judas and the others that this is my blood which is shed for you. He didn't say for all of you except Judas. In fact, it's interesting because I've read, I've read some strange things recently. I read somebody wrote, quote, Judas left before the institution and distribution of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So one, one comment was, yeah, you know, Judas left, one teacher. Judas left before Jesus broke out the cup and the bread. Doesn't say that doesn't say that. Listen to Luke chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, Luke 20, 22, and 21, 22, 20, and 21. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, that is Jesus, saying, this cup is poured out for you, plural pronoun. And it's the, it's the new covenant in my blood. The next statement, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Whose hand was that? Judas, unless you believe that he was like Stretch Armstrong, he left and his arm just stretched out really long and just stayed on the table. Okay, talk about eisegesis. I would, no Calvinist would go there, I don't think. I'll give them all the benefit of that doubt. Oh, go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. This is another really clear one. So Jesus shed his blood for Judas. 2 Peter 2, 1. This one is like so clear as well. I wish I had time to spend on each of these. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So there were false prophets among the people. Praise the Lord. Glad to see my wife walking. She had that back problem. Good to see you, baby. You made it. It's not just a back problem. We had all four of the grandkids all week. Their back went out, then we're going to get grandkids the next day or something. Okay, Lord, you'll get a spirit, and he has by his grace. Amen. Sometimes I feel like I just barely get here, but I get here. I'm faithful by the grace of God. But notice he says there were false prophets among the people, but there also be what? False teachers among you. Right? Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even, look what he says, even what? Denying the master who what? Bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Who's our master? Who's our Lord and Savior? Who's our master? Jesus, amen? These false teachers who bring false teaching deny their master who what? Who bought them. Deny their master who bought them. What does it mean to be bought by the Lord? 1 Corinthians 6.20 For we have been bought with a price. Be glorifying God with your body and with your heart, spirit, which are God's. First Corinthians, that's 1 Corinthians 6.20. 1 Corinthians 7.23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves uh, of human beings. Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and uh, to open its seals because you were slain and your, uh, with your blood you purchased to God. I'm sorry. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation purchased. The verse we've been studying 1 Timothy 2.6 that we first started with a couple weeks back, a few weeks back. It says he, we, he gave himself as a ransom for all. He bought us. He paid for us. That's a payment to release slaves. It's sometimes used of the payment that was made. And sometimes it's used of the application where people are set free because of the payment that was made. In Revelation 5.9, it's speaking of the releasing aspect of that ransom when it's applied to their lives. Peter says, here, they deny the false teachers who are hellbound. By the way, they are hellbound because if you keep reading, uh, uh, you know, further and further down in the scripture, you'll see that the black darkness is reserved for them. Uh, they're, going, they're going to the pit. It's really heartbreaking, actually. Uh, they're accursed children, verse 14. Uh, they're enticing people. They've forsaken the right way, verse 15. They've forsaken the right way. Uh, and the black darkness is what's reserved for them. They're hellbound. In fact, it says in verse 4 of chapter 2 that, uh, they're, that, that uh, you know, it speaks of these fallen angels, 
have done the same thing. And it speaks of these false teachers. And in verse three, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from a long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Well, what if Peter doesn't really mean they were bought by Christ and by his blood? Well, guess what? Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter one, verse 18, knowing that you were not bought or redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with, the precious, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter only speaks of being bought or purchased in one way by the blood of Christ in his letters. Now, John Owen, a Scottish Calvinist who hated the idea that Jesus would have died for everybody and taught that he only died for the elect, says, oh, the master who bought them here doesn't really refer to Jesus. Doesn't really refer to Jesus. You know how I know that's totally untrue? Because despotis, uh, the word we get despot from, the English word despot from, is taken from, it only appears rarely in Scripture. But guess what? It's used in 2 Peter 2.1 right here. But it's also used in the twin or companion epistle to 2 Peter, which is the book of Jude. Now, when you study Jude or 2 Peter, and I've given studies on both books, when you study Jude and 2 Peter, you start to figure out really quickly that one of them was influenced by the other. They parallel each other over and over again. And we're going to be going through the book of Jude uh, before too long, hopefully. I've been meditating on that book for some, quite a while now, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you because it deals with very important issues in the body of Christ. But when you study Jude and 2 Peter, commentators will either say Jude was influenced by Peter, or they'll say Peter was influenced by Jude. I believe Jude was influenced by Peter. But guess what? In chapter 2 of Peter, you deal with false teachers, okay? Then in verse 4, you deal with fallen angels, right? Uh, you deal with things like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You deal with uh, uh, God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and so forth. And, and you deal with false teachers using fleshly desires. Guess what you deal with in Jude in just a span of verses? You deal with false teachers who have crept in unaware, turning God's grace into license like you do in 2 Peter 2. He deals with fallen angels that have been bound in chains of darkness to be reserved for the judgment of the great day in the book of Jude, around verses 6 and 7, just as you have here in Jude verse 4. You deal with Sodom being destroyed and the cities around them in Jude verses uh, 6, 7, and so forth, uh, just as you deal with Sodom being destroyed here in verse 6. All within a cluster of verses are saying basically the same thing. But guess what? That word despot, when it says they deny the Lord who bought them, and some cows say, oh, well, it's, not, it's talking about the Father, not Jesus. Really? Because when I go to the book of Jude, it tells me exactly who the despot is that bought them, that they're denying. It says in verse 4, for certain men have crept in unaware. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness or a license for immorality and deny and deny not the Lord who bought them there, but deny our only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our only Master and Lord, I'm sorry. Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the Master they're denying. Jude 4, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The despot refers to Jesus. Amen? Amen. And how did Jesus buy the false teachers? With his blood on the cross. And the Bible is very clear that you could deny the one who bought you with his blood. Therefore, the atonement of Christ is not done just for the elect. It's also done for people like Paul, the chief of sinners who became part of the elect. It's done for Judas, the betrayer and apostate apostle. It's done for the false prophets and the false teachers as we're seeing here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And you know what's interesting? Dr. Thomas Constable, very popular expositor, he says, when Jesus Christ died, he paid the penalty for everyone's sins and redeemed Okay, every human being in this sense, even unbelievers, he says this verse supports the doctrine of unlimited atonement, the view that Jesus Christ died for everyone, not just for those who he would later save. That's from Constable's expository notes. But you know what's interesting? I read in a, on John Piper's website, not an article by him, but by somebody else, Desiring God website, it suggests a various weak suggestions, by the way, to dissuade people from believing that God loved the world and gave his son to die for everyone. And it says Peter is speaking in reality of a purchase 
uh, or according to the appearance of a purchase. That is, their outward appearance and profession. In other words, we have the verse may mean, when somebody says perhaps, might mean, you need to say, uh-oh, wait. At least he's admitting it might mean this. He says it may mean denying the master who they say bought them, but really didn't. See what he just did there? It says, you know, they deny the master that bought them, but really what John, what, really what Peter probably means, they're acknowledging in this article on John Piper's website that it's speaking of Christ's blood that is in question of who he bought. But they're saying, even though it says he bought them, Really, it's what they're saying happened, and he probably didn't. Did any of you get that out of the text when we read it? Yes or no? No. That is called eisegesis. Eis in Greek is, word to, is to read into or to move something into. Ek is to get out of. Exegesis is get out of the text. What does it say? Eisegesis is reading your view into the text, and that's exactly what Piper's website is doing there. It doesn't say they, they, they say that he bought them. Peter, by the Holy Spirit, says they deny him who bought them. Period. Exclamation point. Not in the Greek, but that they bought them is in the Greek, okay? And it just, it gets sad, really. Why would you want to fight for the idea that Jesus doesn't love everybody truly and wants to truly save them and truly didn't die for them? Why would, I don't, I, I, it strains my brain to why do you fight for that? Why would you want to fight for that? Why would we want to fight against those scriptures? To me, I know only one entity that really would have a passion for fighting against that, and that would be the devil. Because it paints God as worse than the devil. The devil tempts people to be damned, but they have God predetermining people to be damned and blaming them for something they couldn't but choose to do because he forced them to make the choice. Not biblical. Robert P. Leitner, he says, I think he was a Dallas Theological Seminary guy. Two things are of extreme importance in Second Peter passage. One is that the purchase price of redemption was paid by the Lord for even false prophets and teachers, even though they quite obviously never accept it. The other important feature is that these for whom the purchase price was paid are heretics of the vilest sort, since they deny the only possible basis for salvation, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Wow. By the way, by the way, you guys, uh, probably my favorite quote, please, Lord, I, oh, good. I'm like, I thought, man, I thought I found that quote. On 2 Peter 2, 1, and who Jesus died for is from John Calvin himself. Man, it's weird to have John Calvin in my corner over and over again during this series. Calvin admitted that they were purchased by the blood of Christ, these false teachers, his commentary on 2 Peter, again, it's his commentaries. They destroy his systematic theology. Quote, even denying the Lord that bought them, though Christ may be, may be denied in various ways, yet Peter, as I think, refers here to what is expressed by Jude. Yep, he's right. That is, when the grace of God is turned into lasciviousness. For Christ redeemed us, that he might have a people separated from all pollution of the world and devoted to holiness and innocency. They then who throw off the bridle and give themselves up to all kinds of licentiousness are not unjustly said to deny Christ by whom they have been redeemed. Amen? Man, I'm amening John Calvin. I cannot believe it. But like I said, when he sticks to the scripture, he can be really good. Oh, by the way, how about other apostates? Go to Galatians chapter 5. That's that passage. Go to Galatians 5, 1 through 4. That's that passage where it says, stand fast in the freedom where Christ has set you free and don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Meaning you're free. You're free in Christ. Don't go back to the law of Moses to, to be saved. Don't go back to the law of Moses as a means of being right with God because you're saved by grace through faith, right? And then look what he says after he says, stand fast, a present tense imperative, a command to stand fast presently, stay in the freedom that you have in Christ. Don't go back to the law. What happens if you go back to the law though, Paul? What happens if you go back and say, I gotta be circumcised, you gotta be circumcised to be saved? What happens, Paul? Well, look what he says. Verse two, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of what? No benefit to you. Now, is Christ a benefit to them presently? 
Verse one, stand fast in freedom with Christ to set you free. Yeah, they're free, they're saved. But he says, you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. What do you mean by that, Paul? Verse three, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Guess what? If you're gonna try to be saved through law, then you gotta keep the whole law. What are you saying, Paul? Verse four, you have been severed, cut off. The Greek word means abolished. You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by a law. You have what? Fallen from grace. Cut off from Christ. So they're free. Christ is benefiting them and what he did on the cross benefits them, right? Amen? Because he shed his blood for them. But they can end up being lost. Amen? And no longer among the elect. But it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't die for them because they're fine as long as they stay in the truth. Amen? As long as they keep faith in Christ, amen, they're fine. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11. You could cause a brother with a weaker conscience to, to fall. Let's say you're with a brother and he feels it's totally wrong to drink. You know, you shouldn't drink. And you say, hey, have some wine. And he starts drinking it. He feels like pressure. and he feels like I, Then he feels like, well, he drinks it. And he starts getting drunk or just starts drinking, but his conscience thinks he's in sin and he keeps drinking and he thinks he's in rebellion to God. He's no longer in the faith because the Bible says anything not done by faith is sin. You got to make sure you're walking by faith or it's sin. So Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 11 and in Romans chapter 14 verse 15, two totally different books about not causing your brother to perish. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 8 11. For through your knowledge... He who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. The word means destroyed. He uses words that are used for damnation in these texts. Romans 8, 14, 15 says, If your brother is distressed by what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. You can cause a brother to perish and fall away for whom Christ died. Oh, but then Jesus didn't really die for him. That is a lie. That's not what this text says. It says he did die for him, amen? But you could still perish. Just like in Galatians 5, those who go back to the law, right? Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Go quickly, because I'm running out of time. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How, verse three, how will we escape? The author includes himself and certainly the author of Hebrews is saved, amen. amen. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testified with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What do you mean, great salvation? How can we escape if we don't follow Jesus? Well, if he didn't die for you, you couldn't, you couldn't, it wasn't a great salvation for you anyway. Amen? But you can reject salvation. And that's why I want you to go to Hebrews 10, the last passage we look at. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26. For if we, certainly the author's including himself there and other believers, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains what? There no longer remains what? Think, it, think about it, guys. No longer remains what? A sacrifice for sins. In other words, the sacrifice for sins avails for us. Amen? If we're not in rebellion to the Lord, if we're not turning away from Christ, the sacrifice for our sins avails. It's efficacious on our lives. Amen? But if we go on rebelling and sinning, after receiving the knowledge of truth, by the way, Paul says God wills that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's salvation language. But if we rebel later and continue to rebel against him and reject Christ in the context of Hebrews chapter 10, what do we get instead? Verse 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sat or set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy under the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much, now look at verse 29, guys. How much worse or how much severer, or King James, how much sore punishment. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has what? 
regarded as what? Unclean the what? The what? Come on, read it. The blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And by the way, Hebrews chapter 10 uses the word sanctification for salvation. Just read the whole chapter. Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was, past tense, sanctified and has, his, and has assaulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And God said, and, and again, the Lord will judge who? His people. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Wow, he goes on to say later he's a consuming fire. Man, guys, look how clear it is. You could be saved by the blood of Christ. And then you could rebel against him and say, I don't want the blood. I don't need the blood. I can go back to Moses or go back to the law, do it myself. And guess what? There no longer at that point remains what? A sacrifice for you. Because the blood of the covenant that did set you apart, that did sanctify you, okay? The mood is passive, by the way. It wasn't something they did. It was something he did by cleansing them. No longer sanctifies you. That shows that the blood of Christ was shed for Judas. We saw that already. For Paul, the chief of sinners. For false teachers. For apostates, Galatians 5. For apostates in Hebrews chapter 10, where there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins because they trample underfoot the blood of Christ by which they were sanctified. Did Jesus die for them, yes or no? Where are they going? Verse 27. The only thing they have to look forward to is a fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries of God. Hellfire. Don't tell me Jesus didn't die for those who are going to hell. The scriptures say yes and amen. He certainly did. Amen. And the good news is we don't have to doubt that regarding our own lives. Amen. We don't have to doubt that in regard to our children. We don't have to, and my heart breaks for John Piper to the point of tears at times when I think of people that go through these things. When he's looking at his kids saying, I hope God loves them as much as I love them. I hope they're among the elect. You don't have to wonder whether God loves them or not. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said, for if such is the kingdom of God, amen? amen. That's the heart of our God. Our God says, what more could I have done than that which I've done for you, amen? We have an awesome God. Father God, we thank you for your great goodness. And we pray, Father, that we would not hesitate 